Hello, folks. Long time no she. That pun will make sense in a minute. Anyway, it's nice to be back invading your ear canals. I hope you've been staying safe. Uh, I must admit, time has eluded me yet again, as I'm sure you can tell the episode list has stayed stagnant for much longer than I would like. Uh, I would apologize, but it would be hollow. And frankly, the runtime on this here bit of fun tent is already over the usual limit. Now, there's no time like the present for a new episode, and especially during the Oscars of Science and Society. Not on time, Nobel Prize season, baby. Now, a massive congrats to all, of course, but especially fitting for today's episode is some of the announced Nobel Prize winners for this week, Andrea Ghez in physics, and Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna in chemistry. I just want to apologize right now for butchering the names. I'm sure I have, so I do apologize. Uh, they is quite literally three very cool modern women in STEM, which, if you haven't guessed, is a big chunk of today's cast. I won't give away too much, but we have a great show for you today. We're talking women in STEM, we're talking sharks, we're talking epic Shakespearean one-liners, you gore-bellied, bat-fouling, apple john, dewberry, hit it! We live in an age based on science and technology with formidable technological powers. And if we don't understand it, by we I mean the general public, if it's something that oh, I'm not good at that, I don't know anything about it, then who is making all the decisions about science and technology that uh, are going to determine what kind of future our children live in? We've really got to start at the earliest levels with having a broader view of what education really can and should be. Because I find that with the young people we have, we are able to motivate them. Science is all around in us. Knowledge of science is power. It gives you an understanding of the forces of nature. It's not even about how much science you know. It's about how science literate you are. special guest today, we've got Alexandra Schoen, who is a PhD student at the University of Manitoba, researching shark physiology. She is also the creator of the Modern Women of STEM initiative, which you can and should follow on Instagram, and we will get into everything in just a moment. Hello, Alex. Hello. Hello. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing well. Thank you very much. How, about, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. It's a nice day here, so... I'm excited. <laughs> right on. Yes. It's uh, pretty much the same here. Nice little sunny old England. I don't think those right. two words ever go together. Anyway. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, Alex. Where do you hail from? I mean, I know the answer. It's a great answer. But uh, for the folks at home. So I am from Cabin John, Maryland. And I went to St. Mary's College of Maryland for my undergrad. Uh, where I studied biology and math. So, full disclosure, I'm also from Maryland. We're not Southern, although technically we are, but we're also not Northern. I know they say we're mid-Atlantic, but I feel like we're just, no one No one really cares about us. We're just too small. Was that, oh, is that, it's yeah. totally its own identity. We, we 100%. are just Marylanders. <laughs> just Marylanders. Yeah. yeah. Hard um, to explain to Canadians also, because uh, they haven't heard of the mid-Atlantic. I don't really know where to place Maryland, so <laughs> I don't really, I just say, oh, outside D.C., outside Washington, D.C. I've actually, stubbornly, because as uh, you've been made aware, I'm a Ravens fan, uh, American football, uh, so I stubbornly say I'm outside the Baltimore area, not the Washington, D.C. <laughs> area, just even though I know geographically it is closer, and that is like the prominent way that people describe it, but still. I'm stubborn like yeah. that. All right. So what's been your path towards STEM? You said paleontology. You wanted to learn more about that. And just when you got to uh, college, university, it was an easy choice? or Yeah. So when I was little, for sure, that was I was very interested in, interested in science. I was very interested in nature. Uh, it started with paleontology. And then in high school, it was really an AP environmental science. I had this really wonderful teacher 
Um, his name is Mr. Garten, if he's listening. Um, <laughs> and he really instilled just this like love of conservation and protecting our planet. And I, I just absolutely love that. So I went into college thinking that, okay, I want to do something with conservation. I want to do something ideally with climate change. And I finally took a class in physiology, probably my third or fourth year. And I, and I remember, okay, this is, this is what I'm doing. Like physiology, it, it has to do with conservation. It has to do with biochemistry. It's very intricate. Uh, it's how things work and just absolutely fell in love with physiology. And so that's really when I decided, okay, that's what I want to do. I love that. I, I had, I think maybe the exact opposite experience of that. I remember when I, when I was doing like the first intro to animal physiology, I loved the teacher, which is one of the reasons why I took, or the professor, which is one of the reasons why I took the course. I just remember being like, oh, this is like killing my brain right now. So I, oh, went, no. I went much more of the route of behavior and conservation. Let's get into a little bit more about your PhD. So you're a PhD student at the moment, and I was reading online that you first got into shark research interning at Disney's Animal Kingdom, which is pretty badass. Thank you. So one of the things for this podcast is that I like to make it accessible for people that might be thinking about going into the sciences. So can you give a a short snippet on how you even got into um, that internship? Uh, So I guess... When I tell this story, I think the moral of that story that I've come to internalize is taking every opportunity that you possibly can. My very first experience with shark work was actually not at Disney, was actually at James Cook University. I studied abroad there, which is in Australia. Essentially, I I took a class that was called Marine Conservation, and there was a speaker, and I asked him if there was any work in his lab. I, I was so interested in what he was saying. He was talking about ocean acidification. And he said no, (laughs) but he did direct me to another lab that was looking for volunteers. And so I ended up working in Dr. Jody Rummer's lab. I I started to kind of learn about her research and learn about the fact that she's doing climate change research and thermal tolerance and uh, so oceanification and dissolved oxygen tolerance, or I guess uh, hypoxia, so reduced oxygen tolerance. I, I came back to Maryland and I was like, okay, this was a cool experience, but I don't know if I'm ever like going to be able to work with sharks again. But then at the end of my senior year, so my fourth year at St. Mary's, I was deciding what I wanted to do. Graduation was in a couple months and I actually had nothing to do. <laughs> so I was just on a listserv uh, on Facebook, actually, looking at different job opportunities. And there was one post from this guy And he said, don't know if anyone saw this, but Disney is looking for interns. So I clicked on it and it brought me to the application and I just applied in 15 minutes. And I did not expect to get anything out of it. Like I really did not expect anything to happen. Um, But I got a call back as for an interview and I ended up getting the job, which I thought was insane. Where I was, yeah, I was the uh, animal endocrinology intern, which essentially means running a lot of plate assays, which looks at different chemical indicators in an animal's body. And so if you know uh, Animal Kingdom at Disney, they have lots and lots of different animals. And I was running lots and lots of different, mostly pregnancy tests on elephants, hippos, giraffes, whatever you want. That's so cool. Uh, Yeah, it was crazy. It was like, honestly, the entire time I was there, I was thinking in my head, I don't know how I got here. I better not make anyone mad because I didn't want to leave. Oh, so the, the moral is take every opportunity because I wasn't working with sharks. I, I, I was working with every other animal other than sharks. And one of my leaders, Dr. Kat Wheaton, she had this side project where she was looking at uh, shark stress physiology. And I went to her one day and I said, do you need any help with this project? Because I'm very interested in the ocean. I'm very interested in conservation. Uh, I would love to work with sharks. And she essentially said, do you know how to work an HPLC machine, which is a chemical analysis machine, which I did not know how to work. (laughs) And she didn't know how to work. And we sat down in front of it probably for six hours a day trying to figure out how to work it. 
which we did. And this wasn't my job. <laughs> like, that I, this was a total side project. So I actually had to do my job while I was helping her. Wow. And then we ended up running a bunch of shark samples on it, looking at different hormones in their blood. And that's kind of how it all started was just honestly by accident. That's brilliant. Putting in the work as long as you're driven and you're doing it, you take the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that as well. It's it's those small things that, especially what you were saying that you know you just you went to the application, didn't even think twice about it. Fifteen minutes, boom. Because I have I have a few friends that similarly, you know, they just signed up to a couple Facebook groups. You know, the Marine Biologist Network. I think that's yeah. where I found you actually. And it's like just as simple as that. But people get connected all the time. They got they got their own jobs from that. So um, yeah. yeah, it's it's very cool to see that in practice or hear about. Yeah, that and those and those groups cannot be underestimated. So you were looking when you were working on the side project in Disney at the stress response, and you've carried that research endocrine system of elasmobranchs of not just sharks but of skates and rays, and I suppose yep. chimeras if we're gonna be fair, and specifically looking at the hydrocorticosteroid. Yeah, this is the side that like okay, this is this is what I do. Like this is my hobby as well. <laughs> I'm looking at how energy is being mobilized during periods of increased energy demand, such as the stress response, such as foraging, ontogenic, so how energy mobilization changes as you get older, um, as the shark gets older, so mm. how the hormones change and how energy mobilization change. So what I specifically look at and what I started looking at at Disney was a hormone called 1-alpha-hydroxycorticosterone. And it's a interesting hormone because no one really knows what it does or if it actually has a role in the stress response so the background is that in us in the stress response like in humans or in, in any animal i guess you have a primary stress response and a secondary stress response and technically a tertiary stress response so those primary stress response you have perception of a stressor by the brain. So the example that I like to use, especially when I'm talking to kids, is you're taking a test and, you know, your hands start getting clammy or your heart starts beating faster or just like that general anxiety response. And you have uh, initially catecholamines, so epinephrine and norepinephrine being released into the system. And that's like your quick, fast, flight, uh, fight or flight stress response. And then second stress response is... Uh, starting to look more at the physiological symptoms of a stress event and has to do with something called corticosteroids, which in humans, the dominant corticosteroid is cortisol. And actually in fish, in teleost fish, so... Raffin fish, yeah. <laughs> those fish, their dominant corticosteroid is also cortisol. However, sharks and rays and elasobranchs in general... Their dominant corticosteroid is hydroxycorticosterone, not cortisol. So for the longest time, the thought process was that 1-alpha-B, which is 1-alpha-hydroxycorticosterone for short, but 1-alpha-B sounds better, <laughs> was thought to be part of the stress response in some kind of way. And there's two sides to the secondary stress response. There is a energy mobilization side, and there is a mineral regulation side. So in fish, mineral regulation is very important because they live in water, and so they have to balance their ions with the outside environment. And there's been a growing body of uh, literature starting in the 60s, but going through to about the 2000s, where the mineral regulation side of 1-alpha-B seems to be there. So there seems to be some kind of mineral regulation capacity of this hormone during the stress response. But the thing that we don't know is the energy side of it. So we don't know if this hormone is mobilizing, say, glucose or mobilizing a different energy metabolites that would fuel the stress response. So when you're stressed, you need more energy in order to fight or in order to run away or in order to do whatever you're going to do or take a test or do whatever. 
And that's the same thing with all animals and with sharks. We don't know what hormone is actually mobilizing Hmm. that energy. So that's what I'm doing. So that's what I'm looking at. We have some preliminary (laughs) results, I would say. And those preliminary results point to that it's not really mobilizing energy. (laughs) We don't actually think it is. Um, Some papers have said it does. Some papers have said it doesn't. We're not seeing in the sharks that we look at that there is that energy mobilization. But it could be species specific. It could be another hormone. It could be absolutely anything. So, So, well, man. There's so many questions I want to ask, and we don't even... Right, so I guess, so how are you doing the research? I, I want to get to the species specific, but before we get to that, so how, how are you actually doing the testing? Yeah, so we where we do our primary research is called the Banfield Marine Science Center, and it's in Banfield, uh, Vancouver Island, uh, which is in British Columbia. So it's a beautiful place in the world. It takes a tremendous amount of effort to get there because (laughs) the only way to get by car is on a logging road that is a terrifying place to be wow and it's so scary it's so scary but then (laughs) have you ever thought about um um, measuring your stress response as you're getting to the island that is a consistent joke in my lab my advisor jokes about that all the time because I'm just in the car just you know shaking being like okay everything's fine we do our primary research out there and the shark that we work with are called the North Pacific spiny dogfish and they are an abundant species out there they're not endangered so what we do is we actually go out fishing for them every night uh, with rod and reel just line fishing for them Love it. <laughs> bring them back in to the lab and they live in a giant, uh, what we call a cable tank. It used to hold the cables for the underwater telegraph communication. That's so cool. Uh, And then what I actually do for my previous work is I put them into a blackout isolation tank. And so I can do a minor surgery, which is called a cannulation, which the shark gets anesthetized. And then I can put a tube through its tail and then up into its heart. So while the shark is inside the box swimming and doing whatever it wants, but then I can take a blood sample without picking up the shark, which is really important when you're trying to do stress work, Mm. uh, just because you don't want to manipulate the shark a lot. But that's the primary site. And then the secondary site that I worked with, so it was a one-time deal, maybe I'll be able to go out there another time, but (laughs) we went to French Polynesia and we were able to go to the island of Morea and work with black tip reef sharks with Dr. Jody Rummer again, so which was super fun. And we get to put them in circle tanks. Uh, so there's three or four sharks per tank. And uh, we weren't able to do cannulations, but we were able to just do quick blood draws um, and look at thermal stress. So look at uh, increasing temperature and what's going to happen with climate change and as well as uh, bycatch. So we were looking at um, a minute of air exposure with the shark. So looking at those synergistic stressors together to see what would happen. Awesome. Yeah. So cool. I, I'm just thinking, like, would you ever do another one where you'd look at more habituated sharks, like in aquariums? Oh, I would love to. And just compare those. I, that, that'd be fascinating as well. But yeah, that, that is that is amazing, though. And um, it, I, I love that you're looking at the impacts of bycatch, obviously, but also about the temperature thresholds for them. Um, that's, that's super interesting because obviously, you know, warming temperatures in the ocean is one of the, the main predicted um, impacts of climate change. Is that something that you've already started to get preliminary results from as well? Or Yeah, so that's interesting. So these neonates, so these baby black tip reef sharks that's the ones that we're doing the temperature work with there is work out of also jcu uh, uh dr ian bucos uh so he he was one of the people i worked out with out there as well as dr jody rummer showing that these neonates have their, their environment varies pretty drastically in a day So they could be dealing with 29 to 34 degrees Celsius in a day uh, just because they're in such shallow environments and uh, around the island and the water is going to warm much more quickly in a shallow environment. Sure, sure. But he just put out a paper that showed that their oxygen consumption and different metabolic indicators 
actually don't change between 29 and 31 degrees. Huh. Uh, so they seem to have a pretty resilient temperature threshold. So adding to that, what my work is going to look at, and we have gotten results and I'm, I'm currently trying to write that paper. <laughs> what my work looks at is like kind of that underlying metabolites. So looking at glucose, looking at ketone bodies, and seeing how those are changing within that temperature range. So the two degrees between, actually four degrees, between 27 and 31 mm. degrees Celsius. And what we're seeing preliminarily is kind of what we saw with the spiny dogfish, uh, where one alpha B doesn't really seem to be controlling energy. Mm. And they have very, very, very low levels of one alpha B. So there's a lot of questions. I was going to say, <laughs> like trying to, trying to find the answer to one, you get like a million more. Oh, yeah. It's very interesting because between the two species, one's very temperate. One lives in 12 degrees Celsius. One lives in, you know, 30 degrees Celsius. Spiny dogfish have probably the highest levels of one alpha B we've ever seen in a, wow. in a shark species. Wow. One of them. And then the black tips have super, super low levels. And then on top of that, we were able to look at uh, the differences between the metabolites and the, and the, the corticosteroids uh, between babies, neonates, and adult black tips. Mm. And that's something that we're going to look at. Uh, haven't really gone through that data, but hopefully soon we'll be able to figure out, okay, what, why are these things happening? Like, what are the mechanisms? Does their one alpha increase? Does it decrease? We don't know. Great poker players. Who knows? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. So actually, that that's a point, though, because I was going to ask about in terms of endothermic and exothermic sharks. So some species of tunas and sharks are endothermic, and this is an amazing ability to regulate their internal body temperature through a heat exchange of countercurrents. So basically, their warm blood passes over their cold blood to heat it up, which then raises their body temperature and allows them to survive in the colder surrounding water. Now, you can see this with great white sharks, shortfin mako sharks, and bluefin tuna, just to name a few examples. But you'll commonly see this in species that have to move between warm waters to colder waters, or vice versa. Is that something that is also a curiosity of the, of the work? Yeah, so there's a lot of, a lot of people have a lot of questions <laughs> coming out of this work, I would say. And that's one of them. So uh, I still actually do work with the folks down at Disney World. They actually have the one alpha B assay. Dr. Kat Wheaton developed this assay. And without giving too much away, that work is being looked into. So looking at different species, looking at their one alpha, looking at their metabolites, if we can possibly get it, just kind of doing a broad scan of their blood samples mm. and seeing what we can find. That's amazing. Are we going to see you on next year's Shark Week? Oh my gosh, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> I wish. You never know. Fun. You never know. Shout yeah. out to uh, Dr. Skomal. So funding for research is always a fun topic. And generally you need to prove the relevance or the importance of your research. So for the folks at home that might be wondering, okay, so cool. You're looking at the stress response of sharks, skates, rays, chimeras, like, yeah, right. Okay, cool. Why should we care? Right. Right. No, super good question. So when you're looking at the stress response or you're looking at energy mobilization, you're really looking at how is this animal going to deal with periods of increased energy demand? And when we're looking, we're talking about things like climate change or bycatch um, or just targeted fishing. And when we're talking about those kinds of things, these animals are going to undergo some kind of stress response. The important thing for us to know is how, is how are they dealing with that? And especially for climate change, these are environmental factors that are changing very rapidly. And we're just learning in a lot of different animals how this may affect them in the future or how they're already affecting them. So that is like the primary reason I would say, but the reason why 
and this this is kind of getting on a pedestal a little bit. The reason why <laughs> laws and ranks are so important is these really really important roles. So there are more sharks in a system. It's generally perceived that that's a healthier system because they control all the trophic levels below them. So they control the herbivores, they control invasive species, they remove sick and dead animals from the environment, and they recycle nutrients. So that's why they're so important, and that's why the fact that we're losing these species, that's really, that's bad. And so we need to, we need to know how are they going to handle these conditions? How can we save these species? So what can we actually physically change? Um, And a good example is marine protected areas. So providing refuge for these animals or fishing regulations and different things like that. I love it. I would even add that the the larger the human population gets, the more we're going into the waters, whether that's for recreational purposes or you know even 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 for positive things like um, renewable energies. Uh, I remember reading something ages ago about uh, marine life being disturbed by the construction of wind farms, offshore wind farms, and you know just having the impact uh, or the risk assessment for those, you know, it's kind of like oh wow, yeah, there were sharks biting the cables of them. You know, uh, bring this, and you're just kind of like, oh yeah, like uh, obviously they, yeah, that makes sense. You are a very busy woman. So I want to get to the second part of your busy life, which is this new initiative. Is it, is it right to say initiative? Is that, is that Would that be fair? Yeah, people have been saying that. So I kind of, yeah, I kind of started saying that too, initiative. Yeah. So for the people at home, academia is, it's a, it's a hard field to break into and it's tricky to navigate consistently and especially longevity wise throughout a career. You know, it starts from that beginning bits where you're just trying to get those first few papers published, get your name out there, then the next step of making it to the first author on a paper, and then, you know, people get into the publisher-perish mindset, um, and like we mentioned briefly, the constant need for funding and grants and different positions and postdocing and, and all of it is very competitive, and aside from all of that, as, as I'm sure you're aware, is people are still human, and personalities and ego and all that fun stuff. So with that landscape, it seems that women and both people of color have been taking on those usual challenges of academia while also simultaneously facing further challenges and uphill battles. It's not a it's not a new issue. It's been going on for a while. It's a scar within STEM, within the sciences, that's been around in both high-profile settings, you know, the uh, Rosalind Franklin's public exclusion from the discovery of the double helix structure um, of DNA way back when with Watson and Crick and then just a few years ago with the Nobel laureate Tim Hunt's very now infamous speech uh, in which he just started with his foot in the mouth by saying the trouble with girls in science. I mean, I don't know how you get better with that, but no doubt there's also a lot of these issues that are not made high profile and they still go on every day. And so this brings us to your initiative or project or whatever we're calling it, but it is the Modern Women of STEM, which I think is amazing. Full disclosure, before I get to the questions, is that uh, I wanted to make sure that I, I, I was being a bit thoughtful about it. So I spoke with my wife, who's also a brilliant woman and also a teacher. And so I thought it'd be good to pick her brain a bit. The The questions for you about the Modern Women of STEM are, are probably influenced by the conversations that we had. So I guess from your perspective, um, or for the from the collective perspective of experiences, what are the barriers to women in the sciences, or what are those main ones that people should know about if they're not aware of? Yeah, so I guess that was also something I had to think about, because I, being from Maryland, going to the high school that I did, I definitely came from a very privileged place, where I loved science as a kid, but no one ever told me that I could not do science really until college when I started hearing all of these experiences from other women particularly people of color who did have those barriers who they were told at some point in their life that 
they could not do this. And just having someone tell you that, that you can't do this, that that's internalized. And whether or not it's just like a passing thing or it's something that is uh, more systemic, that definitely becomes something that you think about, okay, daily where you think, okay, well, I can't do this. And that's not, this isn't for me. That's, a, that's really where it first starts, where a lot of women and, and people of color actually exit STEM fields in primary school, where they just write it off completely. Mm-hmm. And that can be really seen in math, where people just are told that they're bad at math, and they internalize that they're bad at math, and then they never do math again which I can, a large percent of the population, I think, can identify with that. Like, you know, I'm not thinking that they're bad at math, which honestly, you're probably not. You're probably not bad at math, but you're probably told at some point that you're not as good at math as someone else. Um, so I think that's the first thing. And then systemically for women, uh, the issue, especially with COVID, is that we still live in this society where women are viewed as primary caretakers. So not only for children, but for um, elderly parents and whether or not women have broken into academia or broken into STEM fields right now, especially during COVID, everyone's working from home. So everyone is trying to figure out what their role is at home. And there's actually a recent article in Nature, in the Nature News, that brought up some issues where there were less preprints of manuscripts going to publication by women than there were prior to the pandemic. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, they, I guess, correlated that with trying to figure out what their what their role is, I guess, inside the house as well. So, and that happens without a pandemic as well, trying to figure out what their role is. Yeah, so I guess <laughs> those are the those are the the few that I came up with. There are many more, particularly for people of color, and I want to emphasize that that there's a lot of systemic um, issues that need to be resolved there as well. Oh yeah, and it, it, it's even issues that I think just just reading a little bit online that it's obviously not just in the sciences, but it, it just goes as far as even your name. You know that. Uh, whatever whatever the the study was that went around a, f- a couple years ago, you know, where people had the same uh, resume, same CV, different names sent it out, and you know, clearly the more uh, European white sounding name was getting all the bites. Yeah. Um, oh, and I've have, I've had friends who have had that issue, and then on a, on a personal note, I I do that. So I I my, on my name on my resume is not Alexandra, it's Alex. So. The reason why I do that is because they don't know if I'm a male or female when I say Alex. So, and I've had people <laughs> assume that I was a guy before wow. and that's worked in my favor. It's a game that I guess some people don't realize that they're playing and some people don't have to play. It is. And, it, and it's hard to know which one is more dangerous. So, so with that in mind, and, and again, it, it's great. I'll, I'll put some, I'll, I'll make sure to find that nature article and post it on the blog post that's associated with this episode and as well as other research into just the challenges that both women and people of color face in the sciences. I assume, but I don't want to, that this might have been the uh, motive for starting the modern women of, of, of STEM, but I'd love to hear it in your own words. It was towards the end of June that I, I guess the news was very depressing, <laughs> <laughs> especially coming out of the States, you know, you're you're trying to figure things out. You're again, working from home. And I just really wanted something that I can contribute to that was a positive thing. And I think I tend to do that just as a person. And I read a article that was written by a former professor of mine, Dr. Jessica Malish, about, again, the pandemic and how women trying to figure out what their roles are at home as well as in academia. Mm. And it's a great article and she's an awesome person. I'll so I'll make sure to link to that one as well. So I was reading that and I thought to myself, wouldn't it be really nice to have a place where women can tell their own stories in STEM, especially women who you wouldn't necessarily hear about in STEM. And so that's kind of where it all started. And I actually had started a Instagram when I was in Australia in 2015. <laughs> it was like basically the same idea But yeah, it was a disaster the first time I started it. So I deleted everything on that Instagram. 
And I restarted it and I started it by, again, posting in these Facebook groups that I was talking about earlier, asking for people's stories. So particularly women and particularly people in underrepresented groups. And so that was the start of it. And yeah, so for the most part, it's their story and they're telling it and they, they, they send me pictures and I just, instead of using I, I say their name and I use their pronouns and, and I post the pictures and, you know, put their story out. And that's it's like kind the of, people of New York Facebook thing that always went around oh, for a while. Oh, that's such a compliment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yeah. Where they tell their own story. Yeah. Yeah. So is the mission essentially just to raise the profile or shine that light a little bit more then? Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said about uh, giving someone that platform. That's the first and foremost thing is that I've had a lot of people thank me for just having the platform to share. And I take that kind of like, of course, of course you would have this platform. You don't need to thank me for it because... I just feel like it should be there anyways. <laughs> yeah, no, that that's great, actually. And that, that leads me to the next question, which has really been what, what's been the reaction so far? You know, who, who's given you the, the biggest response or where's where's that come from? Well, I think my friends, definitely. My friends and my okay. family have absolutely been the most supportive of the whole thing, um, sharing it on Facebook, sharing it on their social medias. And also from the Facebook groups, from like the Marine Science Facebook groups and that you know yeah disclaimer definitely this pro this instagram page is very biased towards marine scientists and i'm trying to outreach more towards engineers and people who code and like mathematicians and it's just right now it's basically there's like every other person is a marine scientist <laughs> so but you know we have to start somewhere so and i've had a lot of people send in stories well it, it's great that it's taken off so much i really like so good yeah. to hear. i did notice that you made special mention in the description to celebrate women at every point in their careers i guess why why is it especially important to cover all the developments of the career as opposed to just saying you know early careers or you know established careers initially my idea um i actually just reached out to family and friends for their stories and as i was doing that I realized a few of my friends who had been doing scientific work but weren't doing it current I thought about it and was like I still want to know what they're doing I still want to hear their story um that was actually the first profile that was sent to me was from a girl who I went to college with and she said oh but I'm not actively doing research do you still want to hear this and I'm like yeah of course and she works as a nature educator which to me is still a STEM field. And then as I was asking more people, as I was reaching out to people in the Facebook groups, a lot of people were reaching out back to me saying, oh, well, I'm on maternity leave, or I am not in the position that I want to be in, but this is where I want to go, and this is my background. Or for some cases, I'm taking a mental health break from my research, and do you still want to hear? And I thought... All of those perspectives were very, very important. Right, what, you're, what you're doing is really incredible. So first off, is there, is there anything else you'd like to say about modern women of STEM? Just kind of going off of what you said, I think the representation is important. So I try to be as fair as possible with who I'm representing and trying to include many people of color. And I think that is the important part as well is there's a lot of little kids or people in high school or whatever who who never thought that someone who looked like them could do this kind of work mm. everyone has their own individual story and it's it's all very important oh yeah and the other thing the other thing i wanted to say was that i'm still looking for stories <laughs> so, oh yeah for sure so if people are interested uh i can also send you the link to the google form yes please do i'm gonna i'll pop it on the description for this episode and also on the blog post we're gonna spam everything we're, we're gonna Perfect. get it out there yeah <laughs> i love that so before we wrap it up what are some of the best ways to not only support obviously the account and the project initiative whatever modern women of stem quite literally and also your project but also just women in stem in the sciences Great. I think supporting the initiatives are very important. Following 
subscribing, doing whatever people are doing, reading their papers, sharing their papers. So for me personally, that that you now is the, the best thing people can do is following the Instagram and sharing the stories on the Instagram and sending the form and uh, but also there are a lot of other cool initiatives and projects that people can be following. And again, I'm marine science bias, like Miss Elasmo. So that is minorities in shark science. And they are a new project that uh, highlights uh, people of color in shark science. There's mm-hmm. also a uh, Physio Shark, which is run by Dr. Jody Rummer, so very prominent and strong woman in uh, marine science who's running this project. Also, I again may get in trouble for saying this, but <laughs> go for it. Supporting, I guess, equity over equality, and what I mean by that is it's one thing to be equal, but it's another thing to be equitable. So providing opportunities for women, providing opportunities for people of color, actively hiring and tenuring women and people of color, uh, that's also really important to supporting these different groups. And also uh, that goes on into primary schools as well, is supporting girls who like science, supporting girls who like STEM, making sure that you don't actively or people are not actively saying, oh, this is not something that women can do this is not something that you can do even in passing like that's so important Mm. so so important um you know that even those small little nuances in the class dynamic can make all the difference as well so that uh, that's just to highlight how important it is to have that representation that you're talking about and and like you said before about the point of profiling is just to show you know who knows what the next einstein might be sitting in a class somewhere and seeing that profile be like Oh man, they look like me. I can do that. Right on. I love it. Right. So uh, I'm sorry I've taken so much of your time. In more recent years, you know, we've had the rise of, I should say, the the re-rise of uh, flat earthers and anti-vaxxers and really just bizarre, unsubstantiated ideas, which I would say usually to each their own, but it's dangerous these days to say that. So with that said, I like to ask all my guests, you have a platform being on this podcast. Is there anything, any last thoughts? It could be about sharks. It could be about uh, modern women of STEM. It could be about running. But you have the floor. If there's anything else you'd like to say, the floor is yours. The floor is lava. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, uh, I think my primary concern in this life, I guess, would be uh, conservation, absolutely. And not only sharks, but working at Disney, I was able to be in a atmosphere of just unparalleled, absolute goal of conservation. Like they are, I cannot even begin to explain how much they are about conservation (laughs) and people don't know that people don't really know that that disney is so involved in conservation initiatives but being in that atmosphere helped educate me on even different ways in my life that i could change and uh, make things a little bit better for the people that live here and the animals that live here and the plants that live here and like by no means am i perfect at all but it's i guess it's the effort and it's the thought that really goes into it that counts and you don't have to be perfect but it's just trying to be educated and trying to make a difference and trying to move forward (laughs) instead of backwards i i think that's spot on there's a great quote oh god what was it Uh, so basically it was i think it was new zealand or australia but it was Zero waste mum. They said we don't need everyone doing things perfectly, but we need like millions of people doing it imperfectly. Because you need to try. Like you said, I'm so glad you said that because I'm guilty too. Like sometimes I'll forget my reusables when I leave the house. Yeah. Though you know you try your hardest, keep it by the door, keep it in your car, whatever. At the end of the day, as long as your the effort is there, that's one less bit, one less uh, contribution to pollution or creating waste. But yeah, so. 
Brilliant. Yeah. People at home, you can follow Alex and all the brilliant women in STEM on Instagram at modern underscore women of STEM. I'll also be putting a link in the description and also on the blog post for this episode. Alex, thank you once again. This was wonderful. We're definitely going to do a follow-up episode when we get more results, both from your research and also from the Instagram account. Who knows? Maybe you're going to have, like, all the areas. I really hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I believe be you. Amazing. You're doing That'll great work. And thanks again. Thank you so much. This is awesome. Thank you. You poor predictable listeners. Did you really think this episode was done? <laughs> Hogwash. Alas, it was going to be, but I had a last-minute thought to try and emulate Alex's great initiative and ask some of the modern women of STEM that I know about their experiences. You might recognize our first special guest, Dr. Claire Embling, Ph.D., from Imposter Podcast episode number three, where we learned all about Dr. Embling's work at Plymouth University. Well, um, I'm a lecturer in marine ecology, uh, which means that I do quite a lot of teaching on the marine biology and oceanography course, mostly, but I teach over all marine biology programs. But also, we do get to do some research as well. And um, my research covers a range of topics from habitat modeling of marine vertebrates. So marine vertebrates is um, uh, seals, dolphins, porpoises, whales, uh, seabirds and fish. So it covers quite a lot. If you haven't heard the episode, I highly recommend going back and giving it a listen because obviously it's snap, crackle, poppin'. Mm. No, I heard that too. It sounded terrible coming out of my mouth, so I apologize for that one. Um, however, the episode is great. Dr. Emblin is awesome. And speaking of awesome, I was also lucky enough to get the perspective of another awesome person, Dr. Nora Stedman, MD, who I know from both our days as students and working together as EMTs at Hampshire College. Hi, I'm Nora Stedman. I am a resident physician in internal medicine. The first year of a three-year residency at the University of Vermont Medical Center and then planning to do a two-year fellowship in infectious disease. So the first thing I wanted to know was... What has been my experience as a woman in STEM? Well, I feel as though I've been very fortunate with my career both in starting off in engineering and uh, more recently, well, for the last 15 years or so, working in marine biology... I haven't often encountered difficulties as being a woman in STEM. There have obviously been the odd occasion when you meet someone with quite biased views, um, but thankfully they've been few and far between. I've been very lucky to be have been supported by quite a few people in positions above me, both male and female, who've supported my career and has made a big difference to me, and I really appreciate um, their input. It certainly has helped having female role models in particular, as my previous boss up in the University of Aberdeen and also a very close friend and colleague who encouraged me to change careers in the first place. And I think that's what's most important um, and has made a difference in my career is having those people who you look up to, who are role models and who support and, and encourage you. My journey in science um, really begins with my mother. Um, and I, I think that my experience as a woman in STEM also begins there too, um, because my mother was a marine biologist, and she was she was brilliant, and that's that was my first concept of science and a scientist was my my mother and the amazing work that she did with whales, and she, you know she was very well respected and regarded in her field, and so uh, it was the most natural thing that that a woman should be in science. So I grew up loving nature and science. And I went to Hampshire College with you, Amir. You remember that? And I uh, studied human health and ecology at Hampshire. And Hampshire's a pretty um, non-traditional institution. And that meant that I really got to just sort of follow my interests and, and my passions in science and sort of create a scientific education for myself that was just about all the things I was curious about which was wonderful. It really allowed me to grow and nurture my interest in science. And in Hampshire, and in, honestly in many of my roles and experiences in science, my gender just hasn't been so much of an issue. You know, I'm very aware of the history of 
exclusion of women from the sciences and the fact that a lot of women experience sort of mistreatment and discrimination in, in STEM workplaces. But for me, it, it has always been pretty okay to be a woman. And again, I think a lot of that comes from my mother and, you know, you grow up with the intrinsic understanding that you belong in a field and, and that you deserve to be there and you have as much right as anyone to be there. And I think that carries you through a lot. So, and perhaps allows you to sort of not see things because, you know, you have no reason to question your, your deservingness. Medical school is, it's long and it's hard and ultimately it was a really excellent experience and, and I was very grateful to have done it and to be where I am. Um, and again, I, you know, my gender didn't feel like it was a, a huge issue most of the time. I think that the times I noticed it most in, in medical school was would be when uh, like uh, male professors would sort of make a, a well-intentioned, if somewhat inelegant, attempt to sort of address the history of sexism and gender inequality in medicine. I, I've overall had a very positive experience as a woman in the world and as a woman in science. Um, and that's not to say, well, in medicine, you know, I think I, I can't say that I have experienced all the breadth of what is out there that women experience. Um, and have I, you know, has there been mild work, workplace sexual harassment? Sure. But but never in a way, I think that there is this thing that I experience and I suspect a lot of experience, which women experience, which is that you, you kind of roll your eyes and you move on. Would I like to address all of those offhand comments? Yes. And have I gotten better? I hope so. It's not so much for me. You know, I, I don't I don't really care. But I, I think it's inappropriate that any woman should be subjected to them. And so it feels more important to me to, to speak up about things so that other people don't have to endure it. And, and you know, I, I think that the last thing I want to say about being a woman in, in medicine is, well, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that I had really great mentorship from men in college. But I will say that it has been particularly meaningful to me. Um, in my medical school training um, and at the beginning of my residency to have a few female mentors who really emulated or can continue to the type of work that I want to do and who I can really see myself in in a lot of ways. And I don't know that it is because they're women, although they do happen to be women, but but that they are, they are practicing medicine in, in a way that really speaks to me and that I really respect. Though each field of STEM is different and every individual's experiences are unique to themselves, I was also curious about... Have I seen representation, attitudes or challenges towards women in STEM change? Yes, certainly I've, I've noticed things change. I mean, things um, have been moving in the STEM environment for a long time. So certainly my move into engineering and science in the first place was supported by uh, women to science and engineering, the wise scheme. So I did some of those uh, events when I was at school. I had a, a head teacher in the late 1980s who was trying to support women into engineering. So I did some engineering courses when I was when I was 17. So certainly that supported me getting into engineering in the first place. When I did engineering at university, I was only like 10 of us on a course of 120 students, um, female. Um, I'm not sure that's changed, how much that's changed in engineering, but certainly in the workplace, there's been a lot of changes. So, for example, uh, I've noticed a lot of changes at the university. Uh, we've got a few years ago, maybe about five years ago at the university, the women's network was set up to support women within the university. And I'm a mentor and a mentee as part of the women's network supporting um, women in their careers within the university. And also things like Athena Swan, which universities are, um, most universities are signed up to. We've got bronze in our department now. And that's for supporting equality in the workplace. Um, I'm on our Athena Swan committee. And certainly I've seen positive changes within the university as a result of that. There's still a way to go. Um, so, for example, um, 
you know, in our department, we're quite lucky now to have quite a lot of, well, a lot. We've got a better proportion of women to men in lectureship and gradually getting there with the associate professor. We've just had our first two female professors uh, promoted within the department. So things are changing through schemes like Athena Swan to try to uh, provide you know, equal opportunities for diversity, whether through uh, women or ethnic minorities, for example, uh, through the university. So things are definitely uh, changing and improving for the better. There's still a way to go, though. I'm not sure I, I really can address this because I'm still pretty young and I don't know that I've been around long enough to, to have seen significant change myself. But I do feel like I have um, heard about change as it is sort of lived in the careers that the women that came before me had and then that women of my generation are having now. And, you know, the stories that are told by my older female professors and um, and doctors that I, I worked with is that 20, 30, 40 years ago, when they were training and they were early in their careers, they were often very doubted and made to feel as if they did not belong. And many people questioned their abilities and they had to really work against that and prove themselves in the setting of that disbelief. Women in, in, in medicine are now, I think, over 50% of medical school applicants and medical school students, and there's still some inequality in, uh, within uh, different medical subspecialties, but overall there are a lot of women doctors out there and, and are increasingly more. You don't run across colleagues who question your uh, question your intelligence uh, or your right to practice medicine because you're a woman. Now there are, you know, certain patients make fairly belittling remarks, and there's not there's really not that much to do about that. You're you're there to be their doctor, and so that's what you do. You take care of them, and there's not really time uh, to to give people lectures about gender equality. Although sometimes I wish I could. Um, but I think that what women my age face now in science and in medicine is this question of balance and this, this concern about how to both have the career that they want in medicine and how to be um, successful and, and um, achieve, uh, to, to do the, the work that they want to do in medicine um, and also to have the families that they want to have. And I don't think it's unique to women, but I do think that because women generally are expected to bear more of the burden of childcare, the onus is put on women to, to, to figure out how to make families work and worry about sort of that work-life balance or that work-family balance. And last but not least, of course... So what would I say is the best way, way to support women in STEM? So question three here um, about supporting women in STEM um, and in medicine... I think there's a few levels of of that question. Um, the first and most basic being just you know respect, which is um, should be should be the norm. That's where we start, right? Is is treating female colleagues with respect and dignity, and seeing them as equal contributors. The next level is sort of celebrating the accomplishments of women as scientists and as doctors not as female scientists and female doctors um, because the things that female scientists and female doctors do are not remarkable because they are women they are remarkable because they are uh, intelligent competent uh, brilliant scientists and doctors um, and to celebrate them only as women rather than as scientists rather than just as intellectual minds i think um makes it seem like the sense that sometimes comes across is like well that's pretty good for a woman and then the sort of probably not the final because i'm certainly not a an expert on gender equity but um i think the last thing that comes up is being really proactive about making sure that there are women in positions of leadership um in your professional sphere um and that women are given roles of responsibility, that women are given 
opportunities to advance within whatever their path is. And sometimes that means if you yourself are on sort of, um, on a, let's say an equal footing in terms of your level of career, level of advancement with a female colleague. And I sort of say this, I speak to men when I say this because this doesn't really apply to women, but um, I think if there are opportunities for advancement and you have female colleagues and you you are working in a field where women are underrepresented and you're being asked to take on a position of responsibility or of leadership, um, before accepting that position, one question you can ask yourself is, is there a woman who would be equally or more capable in this role? And could I suggest that she be considered for the position in my place? You know, obviously I want everyone to have good opportunities in their careers and everyone to to be able to advance in their careers in ways that, that they hope for. But um, if, if your aim is to improve gender equity in your, in your professional space, then then you have to be proactive about making sure that women are in positions of leadership and are given opportunities to take on those roles. Thinking more about young women who are, who are figuring out their careers, who are figuring out what they're interested in, and um, making sure that they are connected early in their educational paths with women mentors and, and people who are really excited to support and sort of champion their their interest in whatever the scientific field is that that they are showing an inclination for because i think women start getting messaging really young about science not necessarily being a space for women or um, how there is still sexism in a lot of scientific fields and so you know i think it's important to also show them that that there is a place for them and that there is that they can be successful and that there are people who have been successful before them and it isn't just sort of doom and gloom you know sex, sexism is still a problem but you know that hey this is a, an amazing field there's so much to learn and so much to know and so much to explore and there's a place for you in it and here are these people who have who have gone further than you have and Here's how they've done it, and here is how they've made it work as women to, to sort of give them great examples of female mentorship and role models who, who certainly have walked the path before them and, and demonstrated that it's, that it is a space for women and a, a space where women belong. I mean, from a personal experience, I've really found having mentors, whether official or unofficial, mine have always been unofficial, but people to fight your corner, someone, um, role models, uh, within that it doesn't have to be a female role model it can be anyone who you find inspiring and who fights your corner and someone you can bounce ideas off to help you support you in your careers um, my main mentors and role models have been female so I would say if you are a woman in STEM then make the effort to go out there and support other women in STEM I've got a colleague who's always looking out for me she's always saying hey I've got a project why do you get involved with and I feel really supported in that way and I think that makes a real big difference is is supporting each other um, and I try and get involved in those sort of schemes but also just helping people around me realizing that um, that's what we need to do is have our own support network thank you Thank you, Claire. In all seriousness, though, listening to these overall supportive experiences from these modern women of STEM is extremely heartening. It's great. It truly, truly is. And as an individual that doesn't identify as a woman, I'm prefacing the following with, I can try to imagine, but the reality is, of course, that I will never be able to understand the experiences of women in STEM fields particularly women of color. The double standards, the condescension, the discrimination, all of these things that have shaped the experiences of some women in STEM is dark and shameful. So, as I tell all my guests at the end of each show, they have a platform. And I, too, would like to use this platform to make sure that the overall supportive experiences of Alex, of Dr. Embling, and Dr. Stedman 
are indeed the norm, that respect amongst peers is a given, that opportunities and representation are visible and available, and lastly, for those that are in a position to be a mentor to someone starting their career, to do so willingly. One, because you never know who you're helping up, but also because the world provides enough problems, so helping others where you can is just the right thing to do, really. You know, it's something that the best team in the National Football League, that's American football for you international listeners, the Baltimore Ravens, all say at the beginning of each home game, they have it displayed very large on the TV screens in the stadium, and it just says, don't be a jerk. It's a great mantra for life. Just be nice, you know? Just, everyone just be nice. All right, everybody, that is it. We went way over the usual time, but hey, it was an important episode and hopefully one of many on the subject as there's more topics to explore and other perspectives to hear. So, once again, a big, big thank you to Alex Schoen. Make sure you follow the link in this episode's description to her Modern Women of STEM Instagram account where you should for sure follow her. Don't forget to also check out the blog post for this episode with links to all the articles discussed and, of course, the application form for any interested modern women of STEM. I know I would appreciate that, and I'm sure Alex would as well. Uh, I also want to give a big shout-out to both Dr. Embling and Dr. Stedman for their help with this episode, and, of course, my wonderful wife for her insight. If you like what you heard today, you can check out past imposter episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, the whole shebang. I don't know what you're listening to it on now, but clearly whatever you're listening to it on now is working. Um, If you're not going to listen to old episodes, the least you could do is hit that old like and share button and spread the good word of this here podcast. So, yeah. Right. Till next time, folks. Let's crescendo.